Welcome to Remote Controlled, Varieties to Be Podcast. I'm Deborah Birnbaum. Every week, we'll bring you conversations with some of the best and brightest in television, working behind and in front of the camera. On today's episode, we're talking to late night host Seth Myers. Stay tuned. Hi. Hi. Hi, everyone. How are you? So how are you holding up? It's been quite a year. Yeah, it's been quite a year, but it's been quite a year for all of us. Exactly. Yeah, so I feel like probably average. <laughs> yeah. How do you even keep up with the onslaught of news? I know you uh, get asked that question all the time. You know, I think we were lucky because, uh, not lucky, but we were lucky that the campaign, the election, was so crazy that our show built an infrastructure to handle how fast news was happening. Uh, we thought that was going to be the end of it. It turned out we were uh, wrong, a lot of us, most of us. <laughs> Uh, and so then that infrastructure just comes and, and helps us every day as we try to try to keep up with everything that's happening. The Closer Look segment in particular has really been fantastic for you. How's that working out? Uh, it's working out great. I really tip my cap to our incredible staff who we did not hire to do pieces like that. And then they sort of figured out uh, researchers and uh, the people who, you know, are, are pulling clips and making sure graphics are ready. They do an incredible job. And then Sal Gentile, who's a, a writer that we got via cable news, who's just really great at processing the events of the day and, you know, sort of distilling it down into a 10-minute piece. So, and another great segment that you've come up with is Jokes Seth Cantel. Yes, I did not come up with Jokes Seth Cantel. Uh, <laughs> Jenny Hagel and Amber Ruffin uh, brought it to uh, my desk. Uh, so I wasn't smart enough to come up with that idea, but I was smart enough to know it was very, a very good idea. Sounded and it basically boss. came from uh, Jenny Hagel, who is, uh, you know, she's both Hispanic and she's gay, and she realized that writing jokes, there were times she was writing for a straight white guy that she would write jokes that would not be fun if I would say them, uh, but would be a lot of fun if she would say them. And so it was great to come up with a way that those jokes that were really good jokes could still be delivered on a show hosted by somebody like me. And how has the response been to it so far? Great. I think people, you know, it's nice that it's given Amber and Jenny a platform to the point now that they can come out and do other stuff. They can do commentary about things that they feel deeply about. You know, it's hard when you're a writer on a late night talk show. When you go out there and people don't know you or aren't familiar with your work, it's very hard to score. And now they're out there enough that, you know, if Jenny has an idea on Sunday night that she can just write it out and we can try it on Monday. And do you have veto power over their jokes? Yes, but I have veto power over everyone's jokes. <laughs> I don't think I exercise it very much. Uh, you know, we also, we do our jokes for an audience. We tape our show at 6.30, and at about 4.30 every day, we round up people in the building. We just, like, find tourists in 30 Rock and ask them if they want to watch a monologue rehearsal. <laughs> and we read, I just stand there in a hooded sweatshirt and read jokes off paper um, and they give us very good feedback as to what we should veto. Yeah. <laughs> Even though a lot of them are from like Nordic countries and don't understand. <laughs> I had to, I learned uh, that I had to ask beforehand how many of you are from out of the country because there would be days where I thought I had jokes that would just crush and then they would bomb and an intern would say, oh yeah, they were all from Norway. So, <laughs> what is it about Norway? I don't know. Maybe it's not Norway's fault that they're not up to date with the. Uh, inner happenings of the EPA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you lost good jokes to that room? Uh, no, we've we've. I think we've found how to calibrate what counts as a as a laugh to the test audience. Um, and certainly, there are jokes that you like so much that you're willing to let it fly, um, even though you know it hasn't worked earlier in the day. 
So just going back to Amber and Jenny for a second, I, mean, I think it's a good example. I mean, given that we're spending this day talking about parody, sure. having women in your writer's room, that's a rarity in late night. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's getting better, certainly. Uh, I mean, you know, I can only, uh, I don't know the breakdown everywhere else. We are certainly lucky um, to have women on our staff, particularly this year. When there are women's issues that, look, I feel strongly about things that happened this year as well, but I think oftentimes it has more power coming from uh, women. And so not only are they helping me say it in a way that will get the message across in the way I want it to, but I can also turn it over to them because, you know, in the beginning when you have women on your staff, you think, oh, will you guys please explain how you feel uh, and then I'll tell everybody. And then I realized, oh, or you tell everybody. Uh, and that, I found, is a lot more effective. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. How many women do you have in your writer's room overall? We have four women on the staff. Yeah. And how does that compare to what the rest of the late nights? I don't know. And uh, that's an honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know much about any of their writing staffs, so. though. <laughs> But the experiences that you've had coming up through SNL, what was that experience like? Well, that look, that's I, the thing, and I, I, I think I was so incredibly lucky. You know, when I came up at SNL, not only were there women on the staff, but, you know, Tina Fey was the head writer, and so it was very hard to, you know, you had to have a mental illness to hold the position that women weren't funny at, <laughs> at SNL at that time. Like, you don't come out of that and say, man, I wish women could write jokes. Uh, <laughs> When you're working with Tina, I mean, when I started SNL, the person I, I wanted to be Tina Fey. Like, it wasn't that I wanted to, I just wanted to have those skills. I wanted to be able to write jokes that were that good. I wanted to be able to deliver them with that, you know, uh, strength. And so, you know, I came from a place where I was modeling what I wanted to be after uh, this writer that I, I just had so much respect for. And, you know, and, and that, you know, I, I feel like I worked at SNL in an era where there were so many strong women voices that, you know, when it came time to staff up my show, uh, that was really important to me. What did you learn from working with Tina? Uh, the thing I learned most, I think, from working with Tina always was still carrying around a script at 11.25 on Saturday night. Like, she was, if she could still come up with one better joke than one of the jokes she had, uh, she was willing to, to try to find it. And I think that that, there was never... Uh, in, like an ounce of complacency in anything Tina did. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was just you realize, oh, everything she has is, you know, obviously a great deal of it's because of talent, but she never, ever got outworked. We've seen a lot of female comedians get sort of taken to task over jokes they've made in the last couple of weeks, if you haven't noticed. Yeah. Do you think that's a gender thing, do, or do you think it's just where we are politically as a country right now? I mean, I think that, you know... Uh, I think anybody who said things like that would would have uh, there would have been a reaction based in the time we live in right now. Um, we love reacting. Uh, uh, both sides of the aisle, we're very good at reacting. Um, and uh, so I don't, I don't, I can't speak to whether or not it was uh, uh, gender based. I mean, look, I'm just glad that there are voices on shows that um, can say what they're feeling that are more diverse than they've been in the past. So, what do you think about Samantha B? I mean, will you? Were you on her side? You were supportive of her, I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm supportive of Sam having a voice. You know, then I'm also supportive of, uh, you know, her apology. I mean, I, I uh, my thought process is that Sam has spent more time thinking about this than I have. And uh, I because I have so much trust in her process, I, I, 
am behind that. And I also feel like nothing I say will probably be as interesting as what she says tonight because she has a new episode tonight that I will uh, look forward to watching. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all will as well. Have you ever made a joke that you felt went too far? Um, I'm sure there's something, but nothing off the top of my head. I mean, we spend a lot of time trying to get that part right. And, you know, look, there are times where you feel strongly about something, uh, and so you use stronger language. And I I certainly think that was where, uh, you know, Sam was coming from last Wednesday. And, you know, sometimes it gets lost in it is what she was talking about was obviously an issue that, um, you know, she was really passionate about and and very angry about. But, uh, you know, there's nothing that I've wanted to apologize for, and that feels good. Yeah, I mean, that is something that I think came from SNL, you know, because a lot of times, you know, especially with people in pop culture, you know, if you make a joke about them on SNL, there's a good chance, you know, a year from now they're hosting. And so how are you going to face up to them? Uh, So Lauren's thing was always, you know, don't make, you know, if you can't, if you have to walk out of the room because you're ashamed the next time you see the person, it's probably not worth making the joke. But if you can back it up and defend it, you know, by all means, fire away. And then I know you had the experience too of hosting the White House correspondence. I did, yeah. Yourself, I can say those words. Yeah. Um, what did you think of what happened with Michelle Wolf? Well, Michelle was. I so Michelle was a writer for us, and uh, I, I anyone who's ever watched Michelle even a little bit knew that was what she was going to do at the White House Correspondence Center. <laughs> um, it was a little bit like, oh, did you hear what happened? We uh, we brought home a bobcat as a domestic <laughs> pet. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it did not go well. I'm shocked. Uh, you know, she is absolutely fearless. Uh, she is unforgiving. Um, it's what makes her, you know, a perfect person to have a show. And it was why I was on the edge of my seat when she did it. And uh, look, I'm as far as, you know, outrage from uh, the right, like that is the most expected. Uh, what is was unexpected to me was that the Correspondents Association themselves would apologize on her behalf. Like, I was very disappointed by that element of it. Because there are certain people who are going to, you know... Uh, you know, that I, I feel like the, the crazy thing to me now is being shocked by what people are shocked by. Like, that that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, as far as people who represent the press and, and that association... Um, and Michelle said it great on The View when she got asked about it. It's a terrible job as a comedian. How do you say this as someone who's done it? It's a terrible room. Uh, you know, it's not like they don't, you don't get paid. Uh, you're on C-SPAN. Uh, <laughs> like the worst you've ever looked on camera. Uh, weird. Hopefully you look better now. Yeah, no, I think we look great now. This is like somebody from LA put these lights up. This is <laughs> this is good lighting. This isn't like weird DC Hilton lighting. <laughs> A lot of thought went into this. Uh, so that's the part of it, you know. Um, you know, so the least uh, you would think that the people who asked you to do it could do is have your back. Would you ever do it again? No. But, you know, I only say that because I really felt like it went well. And I say this as some, as knowing that now there's a theory that that night is what convinced Trump to run for president. It's all your fault. Um, Even then, I'm like, crushed. So, uh, that speaks to the ego of a comedian, where it's like, you changed the course of history. Oh, yeah, got a lot of laughs. Uh, No, but I, I, it would be hard to just have one that, that felt, uh, that uh, unique. Also, you know, I, I, it's less fun when the president doesn't go. 
I mean, that that was the coolest part about it, I think. And certainly from people I... Friends I know who are not from this country, like, they couldn't believe there was something so cool where the president sat there and a comedian was allowed to make jokes about them. Like, that it really did represent the best of our free speech. And now, uh, not only uh, the absence of the president, but the fact that the, that the press corps would also uh, afterwards give their notes. It would help to have a president who was able to laugh at himself. Yeah. I can, I can tell you full well... Uh, <laughs> And all my experiences with him, that's not the case. <laughs> I would, you know, he hosted SNL in 2004. Uh, even then, just a, a real, real lack of a sense of humor. <laughs> what happened? What was that experience like? He, there was no judgment on whether, he has no internal judgment, I think, as to whether or not something's funny. Uh, but if people laugh, like if people laugh, then I do think his brain processes an algorithm that is like, oh, this is funny. I'll keep doing this. <laughs> um, but then that was the crazy thing is uh, the, watching that, his process on humor, I feel like is the same process he used uh, doing on his stump speeches. Like, because basically he's just a stand-up comic working at his act, and then all of a sudden he finds a bit that works, which is, oh, build that wall. That's a hit. Everybody loves that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'll do that every time I go out. And... Uh, Please don't. But, it was the, but that was the thing. I, I really do. I was like, oh, this is the same guy I saw in 2004. Like, once something, once the audience stuff, the audience tells him what he thinks more than I think it, it comes from inside. Would you want him as a guest on your show? I would not, no. I mean, I should say that like, this is not me taking some grandstand. It's never going to happen. Uh, you know, it's not like he's been calling and we've been like, I'm not here. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think it would be pleasant. Uh, or <laughs> revealing, or uh, I don't think anybody would watch it and have any grand satisfaction afterwards. So what is the role of late night in this administration when you have a president who can't laugh at himself? Well, we're not trying to make him laugh, so that's not that problematic. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, I think we all approach our roles differently. Uh, we wanted to be a show that talked about what was going on in the world. Uh, you know, for better or for worse, he's what's going on in the world. He takes up a lot of oxygen. But at the same time, when people, you know, criticize us for only talking about him, you know, at least we picked, if we we're going to talk about one person, at least we picked the leader of the free world. You know, <laughs> it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, someone secondary. But, um, you know, we look forward to, to whatever comes next. And, and that oxygen is available for, for other writers and other kinds of comedy and, and other choices every day. What choices do you make? What do you feel like is right for your show versus what the competition is doing? Do you watch the competition? I don't watch the competition. I feel like a lot of people, I catch the best stuff uh, the next day. You know, if it is something that is getting passed around, I certainly am curious and look. I, I think everybody's doing really great work. But we don't think too much about what other people are doing. We try to stay focused on our, on our own game plan. And... Uh, you know, at the main thing we try to do is we realize in a day from now, yesterday's late night will feel like yesterday's newspaper. So we try to make it as important for people to watch it, you know, within the 24 hours that we do it as possible. And, and we find the best way to do that is to try to pay as close attention to what's happening on any given day. Do you feel like you're taking the audience on that journey with you? Are you bringing new people in? I hope that we're bringing new people in. I certainly am willing to accept that after the election, there was a, you know, probably not a giant percentage of our audience that maybe got a little tired of where we landed in terms of how we felt about the administration. I think we kind of picked up other people who were maybe more interested to watch a show that was engaged politically the way we were. Um, but yeah, 
I don't know. You, it, it's weird because I you your biggest fear when you have these shows is oh I hope we have something to talk about tomorrow. And uh, that's never the fear now. <laughs> I mean, it's been replaced by grander fears, but uh, it's never like, oh, nothing happened today. Yeah. We're just afraid that bombs are going to drop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, please, just make it a uh, something weird he said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's all we can pray for. Yeah. Um, Fallon's gotten a bit of a hit for not being political enough. Do you think he's taking the right path? Like, what do you think of his perspective? On I think this? we all, the worst thing would be, uh, you know, in, in, when... Talk shows were less political. I feel like if I had tried to be more apolitical, it would have backfired on me. I think you have to be the talk show host you are. I don't think a lot of us have a best... uh, You know, like, the reality is, like, we're mostly good at one track, and uh, the idea of, like, you you know, shifting to a different kind of thing is uh, is really hard. And, like, I think that... uh, Jimmy's, you know, an incredibly talented person who has a much larger skill set than I, and he's right to, uh, to to stick with that. Is anything off limits for you? Is there anything you won't talk about or do on the show? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you just kind of find it in the doing, and, and sometimes you're out there in a closer look, and you're, you know, you have an angle that you realize doesn't feel right to you, um, and so you just you know, it's not like you don't get a chance to do it tomorrow. So uh, every now and then, there are moments that we we let stuff go because we don't. It doesn't feel right, but it's hard to put a finger on exactly what it is. By the way, congratulations on the baby. Thank you. <laughs> uh, my wife had a baby. <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah, she had it in the lobby of our building. <laughs> Would you like to tell the story again? I'll tell the highlights. <laughs> my wife had a baby in the lobby of our building, and I know that reflects badly on me because it feels like <laughs> as the dad, your one responsibility is to get her to the hospital. <laughs> uh, but I swear it was just one long contraction. Uh, and I had, I had ordered the Uber... And it was outside. Uh, and we just got downstairs. And she said, I'm, it's coming now. And she just lied down on the lobby floor. Uh, and f- uh, for those of you who don't know, lobbies are like a high traffic area. <laughs> of build- They're thoroughfares. Uh, and it was great. We were very lucky that we had two doormen that were very helpful in keeping uh, the traffic away from the miracle of life. They've reacted very differently, the two doormen. Um, what happened? One of them is like family now. Uh, and the other one cannot make eye contact with my wife. Uh, but it was great. It came very fast. Uh, once the baby came, it was very fast, which is great. Because obviously your fear is that something will go wrong. And uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm so glad it was our second. Because uh, the first one is just, that's its own thing. Because um, even as the fact that it happened in a lobby is not crazier than what actually is happening. You know, like the location of where a baby is born uh, is really secondary to the fact that there isn't a person and then there is. <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, it's great. And I keep telling my wife because, uh, you know, that was basically the monologue was written once that happened. <laughs> and I said, you're better than a mom. You're a content creator. It's all, and this stage, it's all about content. She knew. Take ideas wherever you can get them from. Yeah. How did she feel about the monologue? Good. I mean, my wife is, uh, my wife is a lawyer and has, is very analytical and good at, I think, doing a, a, a sort of cost-benefit analysis of having a husband who's going to share dirty laundry on <laughs> uh, TV. But, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think she understands this point, that I'm her, uh, 
a biggest fan, and certainly in, as far as the kind of mother she is, and, and at that moment, like, it was just amazing to, while I was sort of overcome with panic, like, she was just, like, in action mode, and, and the, her ability to, like, on her own, basically give birth and, and have that baby uh, in her, you know, chest and cradling it and being very calm. Like, my son's first uh, moments with my wife was not a panicked woman on the lobby floor. She was just an incredibly loving mother. Meanwhile, I was, you know, trying to figure out if I was going to have, if they were going to charge me for the Uber. <laughs> <laughs> and they did? They did. They ultimately refunded me, but uh, <laughs> you think, like, oh, that's great. You save money on the Uber, but uh, no, because they, then they send an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, like, well, just a little bit like more Uber Plus, yeah. <laughs> not Uber Pool. No, no, it's definitely not. Yeah, that's true. There were a lot of people. They just go around and pick up a lot of people who had lobby babies and then just work them up. Yeah. <laughs> so rough transition, but I was thinking, you know, you and Kimmel both sort of have now used this platform to share what's going on in your in your yeah. lives. Do you think that's a new thing we're going to see from late night hosts, you know, opening up about what's going on? With yeah, I mean, you know, I, you know, when I first started doing the show, I, you know, before we had something like a closer look, I told a lot of lot more stories than I do now. And then the reality is, like, because you host a talk show every night, you just have less stories. Like your life becomes a bit. The same, um, but I will say, like, two of my favorite nights ever at the show were uh, telling the stories about how my two sons were born. It's, like, an incredible luxury to uh, have this platform to talk about things that have been amazing in your life. The night after the election, which was, you know, uh, I was feeling very different feelings, but it was, you know, to be able to talk to an audience about that moment, uh, you know, because if I hadn't been... I had their own audience there, I just would have been muttering to myself anyway. So it's like much <laughs> nicer to be able to share it. Um, and then what about Saturday Night Live? Would you ever return to a guest host, show up there again? Yeah, but they know I wouldn't be that great at it. So <laughs> uh, that's probably, I'm not too forthcoming. I will say one of the, it's been lovely when people from my era have gone back. And those are nights I really like, whether it's to go back and, and try to help write something or go back and uh, just do a, a cameo. But uh, yeah. It'll always, it's, it's weird to be at SNL when you have nothing to do. Uh, I always feel like um, you're the, you're basically like Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused, like hanging out, <laughs> like at your old high school being like, oh, cool, they put a different bathroom here. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the season of SNL? It's gotten some flack for being too political. Do you agree with that? Oh, no. I mean, I, I feel for them in that, you know, there were, I was there at, during elections that less people, uh, like 2004, like that was not an election year where everybody was, you know, you couldn't miss tuning into SNL to watch me be John Kerry. Um, but uh, in 2008, you know, that was a year that was, I think, very similar to 2016. But, uh, you know, there was this Sarah Palin impression that, you know, people were tuning in every week to watch. But then the election went a certain way, and then you never had to do Sarah Palin again. So we got to move on to new business. Like, uh, that is not something that they can do. Um and I feel like they've handled it as well as anyone. And I would argue Black Jeopardy, which is a sketch that uh, Brian Tucker and, and Michael Che write, they, they did a, a, a Black Jeopardy sketch with Tom Hanks as a Trump supporter, which I think is, is maybe one of the finer pieces of, of uh, Trump comedy that's been done by any of us. What about your own Trump comedy? Any moment you're particularly proud of? Um, <laughs> I don't particularly proud. I don't know. We, uh, What's going on? We had a real? thing. We had an idea where he kept saying because we believe that he wanted to, and I still believe this. He would be happier if he was in a TV show right now where he played the president, 
and everybody reacted the way he wanted them to. <laughs> like, if it was scripted, I think he would love this. Um, and so we were offering him uh, through the election, and it would be an NBC show. And since it was on NBC, it would be had it was going to be called Chicago President. And uh, <laughs> and we just kept saying, if you walk away now, we will give you uh, your own show, ten episodes. And uh, yeah, he didn't take it. I'm shocked. <laughs> I think he regrets it. I think he would rather. I think yeah. you. Yeah. I absolutely think he regrets it. Um, I do want to bring it back to the theme of parody. I mean, looking at the late night landscape, with the exception of Samantha B, you, you all have one thing in common. Yes. What can we do to change that? Like, what's going to take that to move that forward? Well, you know, I uh, I do think it's nice that Robin Thede has a show. Uh, I think you know the fact that Michelle Wolf has a show on Netflix right now. Obviously, you know, it's not network television, but. Uh, I think Netflix might work out <laughs> as a model. You, you guys. might buy some stock in there. Yeah. So um, I, you know, I, I think the the only good news is that the trend line is going in the right direction, and uh, obviously uh, it doesn't look great when you take a, a, a snapshot of of everyone who's doing it, but um, at least the arrow is pointing up, which I think is good news. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank for you, everybody, for having Thanks me. All you guys. I really appreciate it. And I have more good news. We have gift bags for you guys. So be sure they'll be... I know it's a moment everyone's waiting for. <laughs> they'll be waiting for you at Ballet. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for a fantastic day. Thanks for listening to this week's show. We'll be back next time with another great episode. We'll be talking with producer Judd Apatow. And if you like the show, I'd appreciate it if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know, too, who you want to hear from. What stars and showrunners should we invite on the show? See you next time. Bye.